okay. Well, you can start <laughs> with that if you want to. I mean, you can share your uh, metaphors and analogies because uh, the Buddha used similes, metaphors, and analogy. And in fact, one of the most interesting was, and he says, the, the mind, O oh monks, is fast. It is so fast that I don't even have an analogy for it. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, if he existed now, he would say, like, you know, faster than like an electron or something like that. But there weren't electrons known back then. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I often equate it to the speed of light. Mm hmm. In the sense that, think about uh, the moon. Mm -hmm. With all of the features, the rabbit in the moon, or the man in the moon, and all of these equations. Sorry about that. Okay. So anyway, back to let's actually think about the moon again, because I know that your okay. mind has gone away from there, wandered away easily. So now that we're back to the moon, with all the craters and all of that that you've seen, the full moon, all kinds of moons, now think of the sun. Now, how long did it take you to get from the moon to the sun? It was just a thought moment. Very quickly. <laughs> the speed of light can't do it. I mean, the moon is more than eight minutes from the sun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? so, so it's a lot faster than the speed of light. Right. The, right. <laughs> the mind is much faster than the speed of light in that regard. Um, but also, things happen very, very fast that we mm -hmm. often either miss or don't miss. An example would be that the cup falls off the table. Does somebody catch it or do does it drop to the floor? Does somebody even attempt and do a near miss? Because sometimes you see it and there it went and mm -hmm. we weren't fast at all. And at other times uh, you've, you've seen people drop things and then catch it before it lands, right? That shows in fact that the mind is pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, because on how fast. Look at kind of right because we had to compute angles and trajectories and know where things were going to be a split mm -hmm. second yeah. from now. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so I've been sort of meditating this room I'm in right now, and um, I'm pretty obsessed with this wood stove behind me. <laughs> And I've, I've gotten quite... Your mind keeps um, going into the stove, is what I hear you say. <laughs> is, okay. <laughs> well, basically, I was going to share my, my analogy um, for the meditation, at least, which is, mm -hmm. um, um, since I've gotten better with the stove, um, you, you can pretty much keep the stove going 24 hours a day. So if you start from scratch... Um, you know, you got to do the tinder, the kindling and everything, get the fire going. And then it takes a couple hours before the metal heats up and then it starts radiating heat out into the room. But um, if you get the stove going and then you use sort of the airflow valve and slow it down, um, 
and you can keep feeding it wood all day and then you could put it down to its lowest level and it'll stay it'll keep the coals alive all night and then in the morning you could throw wood on it and the fire will come back and then so if, if you balance it just right with the airflow then the smoke um, reburns it doesn't go out the chimney it reburns and then you get the max amount of heat and i'm kind of a perfectionist so i'm always trying to make sure no smoke is coming out of the chimney i'm getting the max amount of heat just in the airflow putting the wood in at different times and as I was practicing my meditation, I was kind of realizing that it's it's a lot like that. So when my practice is continuous, it's sort of like um, when I'm sitting, it's like when I kind of just put the wood on the stove and the fire is high. And then in between, if I keep the practice going, it's like, you know, I still have the airflow. Um, but if my practice is discontinuous, it's sort of like I have to like chop up the kindling, the tinder and the kindling and start over again. And first, if I'm really, really breaking the precepts and and indulging the senses it's like i'm trying to use wet wood to start the fire and i'm just getting a lot of smoke and smoldering and it's not going so that was that was the first metaphor that kind of came into mind that i thought about sharing did with you, you hear did you hear me give a metaphor like that before um because this sounds very familiar <laughs> um i am not sure i haven't i haven't done the deep dive i've, I've seen some of the videos you yeah, like i've seen a few of them but not i haven't gone into like all 1400 yet so i'm not sure um, neither have i <laughs> <laughs> yes um it wasn't too long ago within the past several months but uh think in fact the first thing to say about it is, is that we have to remember to keep putting the wood in. That's mm -hmm. an aspect of sati is that you've got to have the wood there. OK, uh, so we start the story off with. That the body. The physical body is very much like the stove itself. And that uh, the fire is like the spark, especially in the sense of having wholesome thoughts through the sparking of the Dhamma and the wood that we're putting in is our feelings, which is the source of the energy, uh, the motivating. I mean, you have to feel a certain way in order to do a certain thing. Mm -hmm. Now, there's several different ways to feel in order to vote. Right? But it always has the feeling of that something's important out there. But if you have the feeling that oh, voting not important, then you're unlikely to vote. OK, it has to do with the way that we feel that the feeling, in fact, drives us. This is part of the important uh, things that I learned from psychology. And yet in our society, we don't pay much attention to the how we feel. It's all about what we see and what we hear. Mm -hmm but not so much of how we feel. And basically, I think that the reason for that is because we feel bad so much of the time. So why pay attention to that? <laughs> and the answer is, is that if we felt good, then we might want to pay attention to how good we feel. So with that, with the wood or the power or the energy, you're absolutely right that 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 it gets dirty, it gets wet. Mm -hmm. And then it's hard to burn. And so having um, uh, the but it will burn if we keep striking the fire, striking the match, keep coming back and practicing it. And everybody comes with their log in a bog. 
<laughs> Everybody comes absolutely saturated with of the, the human society that we live in mm-hmm. and that and that most of that is having to do with rites, rules and rituals or supposed to's and our relationship to those things. And you just mentioned that exactly in the sense of breaking the rules. Mm-hmm. If you have that mentality, then that is what will make your wood wet or dirty. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but you created it based upon a set of rules. But if you'd already forgiven yourself. Then even though you did what you did, because you're not holding it against you, that means that it didn't stick with the wood when we put it in the stove for our meditation practice. Mm, there's a lot of analogies in here, huh? Okay. So. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I get, I get I get a little crazy with the analogies. I could just keep digging and digging yeah. and digging. Okay. <laughs> so part of what the job is for a good teacher is to help the student keep sparking, keep trying to light the fire. We also mm-hmm. do the sense of making it tender out of those logs of wood that we don't want to try to start with big, heavy, saturated logs of wood, but that's mm-hmm. how people are. So we have to do a few things. And one would be to let the wood dry out mm-hmm. by getting away from it all. This is what this analogy, the log in the bog, by the way, is in Sutta number 36 from the Buddha. Okay, I was going to say, this reminds me of a sutta. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, uh, That uh, you can't start a log on fire if it's saturated with water. So you have to Mm -hmm. take it out and get it into seclusion, which is exactly what we practice. Is That that Mm -hmm. the beginner cannot practice in the swamp. They've got to get their mind out of the swamp into some privacy this is in fact part of the rationale for why do retreats and it's you know actually when, when i mentioned except when i mentioned <laughs> when when i mentioned breaking the precepts i was i was actually kind of talking on in terms of like the uh, the chief that we wake a concept of like mental seclusion um i think of the precepts as a way of like you know maintaining that sense of mental seclusion like withdrawal from from overindulgence in, in sensory stimulation. Um, what they, they talk about now is like dopamine fasting, you know, like avoiding like being on your phone or on television too much, things like that, that like stimulate too much dopamine in the brain. Um, so my analogy about like using wet wood was like when I'm allowing myself to like overstimulate, essentially, it makes it, makes it very difficult to sit and meditate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. All right. So here's another thing then, instead of shoving logs once a day or twice a day into the fire, another way of doing it is having the logs shredded so that we give it just a little bit of wood and just Mm -hmm. a little bit more wood and just a little bit more wood. In other words, we keep going after it. We keep adding fuel to the fire over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. And that will help it get even if the tender or the kindling that we're using is wet it'll still go off a whole lot better than a wet log 
Yeah, especially if the coals are hot. I, I threw <laughs> I threw a very saturated log in there a little bit ago at a bunch of hot coals, and after 10 minutes, it burst into flames anyway. <laughs> well, that's the whole point is, is that we are new at this game, and mm-hmm. our stove, the fire keeps going back out. Mm-hmm. Fire, for the meditator, the fire keeps going back <laughs> out. And so how can we get it going again? And the answer to that is, is what we've been talking about here and that is using the analogy of the stove now let's go a little bit further we can say then that the fire itself is consuming the wood so we've got the body which is the stove we've got the feelings which is the the force the wood the dirt all of that stuff piled on our bad feelings etc and now we've got the mind which is like fire unbound Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know where that <laughs> reference comes from. So, um, the fire is actually unbound, but it's there contained within mm-hmm. the stove and, and working with this. But that fire, if you don't contain it, will become unbound and burn your house down, right? <laughs> and so, this is why we want to, in fact, contain the mind. And then the next part is you're talking about using the damper so that you can control the mm-hmm. amount. And and one thing about it is controlling the amount of smoke and heat, because then that's the Dhamma or the fourth aspect. So we've got Kaya Nupasana, the body, Vedana Nupasana, the, the, <laughs> the fuel, the fire itself. And now we're looking at what kind of heat and smoke are we putting out? Mm-hmm. Because what we're looking for is fire. We're looking for heat, not smoke. And yet most of us live a pretty smoky life if we can mm-hmm. ever get a fire going. <laughs> and why? Because the wood itself is dirty and we don't know how to make good fires. So this is a good analogy for how <laughs> we can analogy, learn yeah. Yeah, how we can learn to practice on a panasati. Yeah, I was and picturing the, the, the. So don't rain on your own parade. Don't piss on your own fire. It and also helps me reflect on how negligent I can be because sometimes I know it's about to rain and I know that I took the tarp off my wood pile because um, it was sunny and I wanted to let it sun basically. and. I'm too lazy to go put the tarp back on the wood pile. Um, so I just let the wood get rained on again. <laughs> and then it makes the job more difficult. And then it's raining and I need a fire. And then I'm like, well, I let the wood get soaked. And I have to like cut it into smaller pieces and work harder to start the fire again. And that's exactly what I'm like with my practice. Like, I know that I shouldn't let it get rained on, but I, I do. And then, you know. All right. So here is another <laughs> analogy that you just uh, mentioned. Uh, and that is, is that when the logs are wet, it mm-hmm. actually we need to take the effort to turn the logs into kindling mm-hmm. so that we can feed it in. It's a whole lot more work. This is the Buddha's understanding of one's right noble effort is to, to begin to stop seeing things as great big problems and start looking at it as just this just this, 
just this thought, just this moment. And in, in that regard, we're taking hand axe and shaving that log down into kindling. But then we have to remember to keep putting that kindling in. This is, in fact, mm -hmm. possibly the way of looking at it is, is that we take that kindling off instead of working with a log that we've got, we take some kindling off and feed that to the fire. And then we take <laughs> some more kindling off and feed it to the fire. And take some more kindling off and feed it to the fire. Pretty soon we've got quite a blaze going here. I feel like I keep adding to this metaphor, but now I'm thinking about the fact that now I'm thinking about the fact that my axe gets dull and sometimes I'm too lazy to sharpen it. And I'm just like really struggling with the dull axe to try to make kindling and it's just like, uh, just sharpen the axe. So there's probably something else in there too. Yes. In fact, that's exactly right. That we want to make sure that we're sharp, that we're mm -hmm. not dull because being dull is a hindrance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> and so we can bring in all of the hindrances in here in uh, one at a time, if we please, with this analogy. But the, the important point, though, is to recognize that the big, heavy problems of life don't burn well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the better thing to do is to chop it down into tiny little pieces, like how do I feel? What is this thought right now? And then mm -hmm. take the effort to change it right now um, into something that's worth putting into the mind. This is the Buddha's idea of gladdening the mind, um, having wholesome thoughts. And pretty soon with that, we wind up with a whole lot better fuel. Okay. Because I feel like things... we just covered. We took like <laughs> all of all of Anapadasati and all of like the teachings and shoved them into this analogy of the wood stove. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> do you want do you want to hear the other analogy that I thought of the other day? <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't think it'll off track us too much. Um, well, have you ever seen The Matrix? <laughs> Movie uh, Matrix. <laughs> let us say that at one point in time, I was sitting in the theater while the movie was on stage. Well, <laughs> um, I, I think it's the most unintentionally dharmic movie that's ever been created. Um, unintentionally, so, what kind of movie? I missed a Like, word. just like dharmic. You know, it's, I, oh, I feel dharma. like it really, uh -huh. people, yeah, like I, some people think it's, Christian philosophy. I think it's very Buddhist. And anyway, but so just I'll I'll give you the premise in like less than two minutes, and then I'll tell you the analogy that I thought of. Okay. Um. So so the the, the premise of the movie is essentially that there in the past that there was a war between um, machines that were given artificial intelligence and humans, and the machines became sentient. Um. And there was a war between humans and the machines, and um, since the machines run on solar energy, humans burn the sky to block the sun. And then because the machines didn't have solar energy, they essentially enslaved the human race to use the humans' physical bodies as their energy source. So they were farming humans. And the way that they kept humans, uh, the human crops from dying um, was by creating a um, artificial reality, a computer construct called the matrix that human beings are plugged into from birth. And so our whole lives, everything I see around me right now is, is a, a computer fabrication. 
that, but in, in reality, I'm actually in like this pod that, you know, I'm being grown in to feed the machines. So the matrix is like the reality that we live in. Um, and then the main character, Neo, he, he's awakened to free human beings from the matrix. Anyway, so here comes the analogy. I don't want to give you the whole movie, but in the second movie, he meets, <laughs> he meets, he meets the architect of the matrix, the, the person, the, basically the computer program that built the matrix that designed the matrix, um, which is this mental fabrication, this computer fabrication that we live in that we think is real. That isn't. Um, so anyway, um, all that's just to say that while I was meditating the other day, I thought to myself that the architect of this matrix, well, first I thought the matrix is not external, it's internal. And I thought the architect of this matrix is craving. I was thinking of the Buddha's uh, words when he first became awakened. Right. Um, because, you know, everything we talk about um, really comes down to um, some form, you know, craving in some form. You know, if you think of Paticca Samupada, um, you know, the first um, six factors up to contact seem to be kind of, um, you know, if you take away ignorance as a prerequisite, the other factors seem to be sort of like natural processes. But as soon as craving comes into it, craving, you know, ma manufactures and fabricates this, this confused um, relationship to the world that it fabricates the self, it fabricates the world, it fabricates the relate the contentious relationship between self and the world, you know, all of the storylines that become our algorithms yes. that guide our behavior that give us a sense you know this illusion of self and free will and all this stuff so um i kind of all, put all of that people, in. <laughs> here's the first thing is is that many people have come up with that analogy or at mm -hmm. least pin buddhism on it and that it does have some things and that we can look at it kind of in two ways. One is we can look at it from the reality of an engineer or scientist or physicist, because this was my early training, okay? And the likelihood, by the way, of AI taking over <laughs> is dependent upon what human being has a hand on the switch because that's the way to destroy AI is take away its power, mm -hmm. take away its energy source. Now, the number two is, is that no AI is going to use human beings as a source of energy. They're very inefficient. <laughs> you know, they, they'll, they'll find ways of having whatever device that the AI lives in have it covered with solar panels better than what we have now because the AI designed them. Okay, so that's so the AI can make it hard, but they still they're real machines. They do have temporary problems and sometimes they break down, especially when they're shot at. Okay, so the reality is, is that it's not possible for them to take over. <laughs> not possible for them to take over. Number two, it's not possible if they did take over to abuse humans the way that they do, because uh, most of the AI. Um, not getting into two details on this, but the point is, is that the premise of the matrix is impossible and that we know for that for sure because it's a movie that's more than 20 years old now and it, and no reality in sight other than the jokes about do you want the red pill or the blue pill 
Okay. But, the, but as a metaphor, it's 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 excellent. <laughs> it it has some features to it. Here's one that you might have missed, and that is is that if the machines need the humans and they need the, the individual humans to remain alive, then they're then they're pointing at the point of consciousness. They have to create this matrix to give a kind of intellectual input or food mm. to the infant. So the Buddha actually talks about consciousness itself is a nutriment, just like uh, eating hamburgers. Mm. Yeah. It's a nutriment. And a lot of people don't understand that. But here's in the matrix, we find an example of that. You've got to give consciousness to these humans or they'll atrophy from boredom. And also, the architect told Neo that the original Matrix was a perfect world and the human crops just kept dying off, so he had to create like a world of conflict and war and suffering in order to keep them alive. <laughs> uh, keep the humans alive. That's just what the architect that, said. That goes along <laughs> with that, except <laughs> that he's missing a point, and that is, is that this whole process that all these humans are going through one way or the other, they're ignorant of. Mm-hmm. Once you become wise or knowledgeable to what's really going on in that regard, that means that you can create your own input because people already have been doing that. They've been creating the, the garbage, the negativity, and feeding off of that because that kept them alive. But now we can find out that we can find wholesome things to eat that will also keep us alive and keep us happy and contented instead of miserable. So it depends upon what food that we eat in the sense of what do we look at? What do we hear? What do we say about what we hear and see and think? And most importantly, which most people miss is how do we feel right now? So um, in that regard about the matrix, we can say that there are analogies that are worthwhile, but a lot of the story is just a movie. It's just a movie. <laughs> and at the end of the movie, is from what I understand, if I've got it correctly, he's out there dodging bullets. Well, yeah, because he's he's realized he's in a computer program, and so he doesn't have to go by the rules. He can like literally reprogram everything around him. Now we're getting into real Dama. <laughs> Yeah, hold on. <laughs> that, that's the real Dama is, is that in fact we can dodge the bullets, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. If we can, if we're fast enough to see them coming, we can dodge. Except we don't have to dodge them with the body. We can dodge them mentally. Oh, you're a yeah. terrible teacher. I wonder who he's talking about. <laughs> It becomes a little bit hopeless in the second movie, actually, because the architect also reveals to Neo that, like, even he, Neo as an anomaly in the Matrix is, like, part of the program itself. And the prophecy of him liberating the human race is also part of the program. And it's, it's, a, it's a cyclical thing that's happened over and over and over. So it actually has quite a fatalistic kind of ending um, if you watch all three movies. But, but yeah, when in the first one, when he can see the code and he's dodging the bullets and... He's bending the rules and he can fly and all that. I think that like that fits in with um, with with the idea of awakening. Yes, that's in fact, that's the whole idea of the red and the blue pill 
is the mm -hmm. idea of awakening that we can put into the analogy, not necessarily of Buddhism, but in the way that people live. Are you going to live in the lies that you were told? Are you going to take the pill and start looking at what's really going on instead? Okay, because the matrix itself is just a pack of lies. Mm -hmm. it, it's an illusion. But here's how we create that over and over again is because we have recorded all of the past lies that we were told since childhood and we keep repeating them over and over and over again as if they were real. In fact, this is why the, the Buddha talks about it as in the sense of rights, rules and rituals, which we could also talk about laws, societies, norms, ways to mm -hmm. do things. And much of it, it doesn't. It was never written down, or it didn't need to be. It was transmitted from mother to child. An example of that is uh, the child is a little kid, um, and the the uh, the bill collector comes to the door, and mom says to the kid, "Go to the door and tell him that mommy's not home." All right. Within a week, this kid's going to be lying to his mother nonstop because she gave him permission to lie. Mm -hmm. OK, and so there's where it comes from right there. That's a clear example of that. We're the, the society itself helps each child to create their own matrix. Mm -hmm. And that what the Buddha is teaching is, is that, yes, that's so. And we have two things to do about it. The first thing it is we're going to start changing and modifying that matrix and putting it to work for us correctly. And then the, and the more important thing is, is that we're also going to continuously remember that either that this is a matrix or that I'm not in the matrix, that I'm in reality now. And this is actually part of the practice of Paticca Samuppada, that when mm -hmm. we come out of perception, then we can go directly to consciousness, which is the thing that's real that we start living in the bodily sensations, the emotional sensations of right now, the eyes, the doors, and we live in reality. The thoughts that we have are about what's happening right now. And that's what's it's real. And everything else, the past, the future, all of that's part of the matrix, part of the lies that we tell ourselves. Uh, can I, I ask um, a question that might complicate things a little bit? <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> okay, so let's see. Um, I feel like there's like three parts to articulate this. First is, is like the experience. Um, so when I, when I do get into um, like a very like awake aware but very deep state of meditation um there's a, there's an experience um that i describe as like it kind of feels like taking off a helmet in a way um and um that there's a sense of like maybe the whole spacesuit. <laughs> yeah like it's a, it's a sense that like like the senses the brain activity and the body all kind of go with that helmet and the personality, Michael, the whole Michael personality, all of the memories and narratives that are sort of the software that guide my normal 
way of being. Um, it kind of feels like all of a sudden those are in front of me. Um, and then there's um, what's looking at it. It's hard to describe without, you know, because there's not, there's not an eye in that, but it's an awareness. Um, it's like a very clean, cool, uh, almost musical awareness that can see that. Um, Would you call that your personality? That suit that it, you're talking about, the helmet and the suit and all? That's coming that off. It's, it's the personality, but it's also contained. Um, it feels, it appears it, from that subjective point of view um, to be contained and constructed within the body, the brain, the nervous system and all that stuff. Uh, at least at least that's how it appears from a subjective position. Okay. So um, then and we then, could go to the point that then you realize now that you are not your personality, that that can be taken off and hung up. Yeah, when I had that experience, that was that that became very clear. But um, um, well, I can get, uh, there's definitely it's what's interesting is that I can see that, but there's still a conceit behind it um, that I can't uproot. But um, I think of Ajahn Chah, he said, there you know, is no you, real reason to uproot that. It's much better to just recognize it. But see, you've brought the matrix into that now because you've got the rule thou shalt not have that sense of self, even when the personality becomes loose. And the answer is, is that, yes, I do agree that there is that instinctual thing. In fact, we can call that the self-preservation instinct. It's an instinctual thing. Here's here's where, no, I, where will, I say that. I don't hate it. This is where I, this is what I mean. Where it, it, like I'm not. I don't want to make the conversation too theoretical, but um, so you know, you know, the, uh, there's the Buddha said that you know, the, uh, you know, monks, there is the unconditioned. If there wasn't the unconditioned, then liberation wouldn't be possible. Um, and then I think of Ajahn Chah when he describes samadhi. He says it's sort of like oil and water. Um, like awareness is sort of like the oil, it separates out from the water, and then you know, all of the five aggregates, everything that kind of falls into the, the category of the five aggregates, the constituents of our of our perception, um, is like the water. So they kind of separate, and that's that that's a good analogy for that experience I just described. So I guess what I'm asking, and um, like I said, this might be too theoretical a question, is and then okay, so there's one more piece. Um, Ajahn um, <laughs> done. <laughs> <laughs> Ajahn Den, he's a he's a, a teacher in the Thai forest tradition. He he got to the end of one of his talks once and he made a statement about the consciousness that is that doesn't depend on consciousness as its cause. <laughs> so I guess what I'm asking you in your in your experience is we can see that consciousness, as the Buddha said, is is designated as like fire as a condition of the of of that which it depends on. So like a stick fire, the fire that depends on the sticks is a stick fire. So eye consciousness is as dependent on the eye, your consciousness depend on the ear. Um, but this experience I'm describing and and some of the words of Ajahn Dun, Ajahn Chah, and then the whole, the whole thing about the unconditioned leads me to believe that there may be 
an awareness that doesn't depend on the senses um, that okay. you. What is the conditioning agent or what is the process of conditioning? Let's get away with that word right now. What do you mean when you say unconditioned? In the sense <laughs> of what is it now? And then there's a conditioning process. And now you have a result of that conditioning, right? This mm -hmm. is in step three, four, and five of Paticca Samupada, and the conditioning is called perception or nama rupa. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the rupa is real. That's what comes into consciousness. But we have to make something out of it. We have to do something to it. We have to name it. We have to understand it. And that's the conditioning agent, perception. And then the conditioned item is the world, the matrix that we live in, as opposed to the real world, which came in through the senses of consciousness. This so is the, the, the Paticca Samupada right here, but you brought the word up, conditioning and unconditioned. So this is what is the conditioning agent. So when we only just see what is there, in other words, in the, in the, uh, uh, I think it's the Badati Sutta in the um, uh, Udana. There is a story about that the scene is merely the scene, the herd mm -hmm. is merely the herd, and the cognized is merely the cognized. In that, in the sense is, is that it's remaining unconditioned by perception. That what the, the the scene is merely the scene. It is not concocted into an understanding of something that will then mm -hmm. lead to feelings. So the problem with that Dottie was is that he was practicing this while he was out walking, perhaps going back to where he lived, and he was killed by a cow. Why? Because he just saw the object of the cow without putting the perception, oh, this is a cow <laughs> with a calf and she's dangerous and I should be afraid and avoid her. He didn't do any of that. So this state, that we're talking about of being unconditioned can be a dangerous state. This is why those who are practicing this need to be in an actual physical safe location. Mm -hmm. But the guy didn't get that from the Buddha because he was too much in a hurry, as you know. Oh, no, you By, don't. But anyway, it's in the sutta. <laughs> the way I, the way I uh, kind of interpret that's, that, uh, interpreted that sutta was, um, was that because the Buddha is always talking about the, the the conditioned, and he's always because is he wants us to basically stop grasping at it, stop fabricating, stop conditioning what's conditioned already, basically. Trying to um, stop and, making sense out of it, which means that by making sense out of it, we own it. We want to take it. We want to steal reality and make it mine. That's why yeah, so, we do the concocting, is so that we can understand it is part of our knowledge now rather than just out there. So he was telling Bahia basically to like allow uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching and smelling to just be that and not to, to be fabricate that. all the rest around it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so for me, like, um, I don't know, maybe it was Ajahn Amaro who described Nibbana as the reality of, or I think it's Ajahn Sumedho. He describes Nibbana as 
as realizing, or actually, I think he he took it from Ajahn Chah. So I think it just goes back to Ajahn Chah again. But realizing the reality of non-grasping. Um, ah, but there it goes. Okay, so he got the beginning <laughs> of it right there, because the reality of the grasping will lead to no longer grasping even down to the thought level and now we've got nothing to grasp at and there's no grasping going on and so things really get cool relaxed easy going and that's nibbana nibbana is not the no longer grasping it's the resulting peace and quiet and happiness that results from stopping the grasping and clinging but the things that we're grasping and clinging after are what makes us feel and what made us feel is this thing in the Pali is Saliatana or the internal mm-hmm. representation or the thing that once we've concocted it or once we've imagined it that's what contacts us so if we stop imagining what things are we stop looking at it for an understanding and just let things be then there is no more perception which means there's no more feelings which means there's no more grasping. Which means now we can be pretty peaceful. We can be pretty quiet. Everything is really easy. Things cool off. And that's Nirvana is when we're um, peaceful. So we could actually talk about it in the sense that the whole process is coming to rest. The agitated mind, one full of hindrances, not at rest at all. It's quite active. And so the whole process of Anapanasati is stop doing the active things and be satisfied with the way things are down to the point that there's nothing going on. Isn't that marvelous? So now I can take a rest. But I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm going to stay awake. And, and watch and what's going on. One of the, um, one of the sort of... Um understandings that I had um, and you know Buddha Dasa always talked about as the desire or following desire um, so I think of of the self as the shadow of desire it's sort of an epiphenomena of desire sort of like um, how a shadow can exist um, without an object and, and sunlight right like the as soon as as soon as uh, the sun rises and there's an object the shadow appears simultaneously um, okay we can so the rising that that in fact, so, the Buddha uses such an analogy with a tree and the shadow of the tree. You see, the tree can just stand there, whether it's got leaves or not, and blowing or not, the tree is just standing there. But over the day, the shadow is moving. And we get caught up into the matrix of the shadow of the tree rather than looking at the reality of the tree. So there's your analogy right there. Shadows. Yes. Okay. No problem with that. <laughs> well, what I was getting at is, um, since since the self is the self is the shadow of desire. Desire creates the sense of self, and then it's stored as tension in the body. Um, and since people, since we humans, you know, myself included, um, enjoy that sense of self, um, we don't like the way the cessation of desire feels because when desire ceases, the sense of self ceases along with it because because it's dependent upon desire to exist. Um, and, um, you know, so we have to kind of train ourselves to be like, you're like, you're constantly reminding students to be satisfied, to be satisfied 
in a desireless state, even though there is a sense of it's different because we're not used to that sense of self kind of softening um, when desire softens. Um, okay. So there's two things that we can be saying about this, that in the sequence of Paticca Samuppada, a lot of people have the cause effect to cause effect, and you have to take nine, uh, the step nine before you take step 10, and then step 11, then step 12, to where in fact the reality is, is that some of that stuff is intermixed and happening along together. And so here's how that comes. When, when grasping actually starts and occurs, in fact, this is the tanha, and this mm -hmm. is the upadana, and the self, is the arm that did the grasping okay when so we we invent a grasp or in order to do the grasping but mm -hmm. the reality is is that as the, the sudimaga points out there is walking but there is no walker all right so but the walking exists and we think i am the walking that's part of the matrix the reality mm -hmm. is, is that there just is walking so here's one of the things that happens with a lot of students in Anapanasati is they begin to, instead of being the thought, I am this thought, we begin to observe with a different part of the mind, the thought in the sense of now the, there is the thought and there's the observation of the thought. And so we immediately, I am not the thought, I'm the observer. But another way of looking at it is, is that there is observation that is occurring mm -hmm. with no need to have an observer. Mm -hmm. But there is still the observation. Okay. Yeah, so it's, that's, it's that's at that deeper level that we were talking about. The sense of self is actually a sense of the observing. But no need for an observer. It's, it's interesting because it's easy for us to understand that objectively when we look out at the world that there can be activity without an actor. But when we look at our own internal processes, it's really hard for us to to accept that, you know. Um, OK, all right. So let's not get so philosophical and let's get really practical. <laughs> because that's what this teaching really is all about anyhow. And, and in this case is what we can do is we can change the vocabulary from the word self into the word selfish because this is really what's going on is that from time to time we get selfish like for instance when one is afraid when there is fear there is someone or something to be afraid and so there the creation of the self exists and in the process it's fear that gives rise to a me. I am afraid. This mm -hmm. is actually the self-preservation instinct, which is, you know, mostly featured in all behavior. So here's an example. Brother comes up and says, please loan me $500. And we think a second, and what are we thinking? Do I have $500? Do I want to lose my $500 to give it to this jerk? Because I probably will never see it again. Okay. And so selfishly, we will say no. And then everybody's unhappy. But if I'm looking for altruistic, oh, it's not me. It's not my money. 
and my friendship with him is far more important than my money. And so we start looking at things relative and say, sure, here's $500. And now we both are happy. And never mind about whether I ever get the money back. That's off into the future. Who cares about what happens in the future? Right now, we have created mutual friendship because I chose in this point to not be selfish, to not think about, oh, um, uh, talk about a zero-sum game. So a win-win or a non-zero-sum game is what the Dhamma is all about, and society is all about a zero-sum game. If I give him something, I lose something. There's where the self comes in. But when we're in a win-win situation, there's no selfishness. That we can be altruistic is another word for it. Are we going to be selfish or are we going to be altruistic? Now, the, the joke is, is that the Republican Party is downright selfish. Everything they say is about whoever gets what. So the rednecks, they get to hate. And the uh, big money gets their way. And the politicians lie and get a lot of money. And so everybody is in a, in a circle of deceit, lies, etc., like that. And there is no uh, camaraderie. Mm-hmm. There is no um, uh, affection or any of that. So you look at the Democratic Party and you find that they're, oh, well, let's help people. Let's do this with insurance. Let's do this with um, Medicaid and Medicare. And let's uh, help these people get some housing and all of that kind of stuff, which is very altruistic. But it's still put together and done in a selfish way. And so we don't want to help the Republicans. We only want to help the poor people. And so our altruistic is choiceful in the in the sense of uh, uh, being selfish in one respect and not selfish in another respect. So that's a, an example then. So the Democratic Party is only half screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't tell anymore, to be honest. <laughs> I can't tell who's more screwed up anymore when it comes to politics. I used to I used uh, no, to be sort of one sided. When you don't want anything from it, then you can see it more clearly. So when you're yeah, selfish, I've, I've kind of pulled myself out of that equation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so not giving a flying rip about which way is going one or the other. And now we have the quality of are we going to pay attention or not? And in this regard, I'm talking about paying attention to what's happening in politics, but I still don't give a flying rip about what happens. I'm just here to enjoy the show. <laughs> So Without I've having been, to guess who done it. <laughs> I've been um, applying sort of the, you know, trying to kind of piece together um, all of your sort of metaphors because you speak you speak very metaphorically, and I, I like to categorize things. <laughs> so you know, you you talk about you know using one wholesome thought after another, and so I started thinking about that, and I started thinking, okay, that's a phrase. It seems it's number nineteen, by the way, one wholesome thought after another. And then, um, and you know, last time we talked, you used the analogy of like. I want to get on the roof. I don't want to climb the ladder. Um, <laughs> Cause I've, you know, I've, I've, I've at least seen what's on the roof 
and I just don't want to climb the ladder. I want to jump back up there. But um, so I've I've determined that you know, wholesome well, that's thoughts the same thoughts. thing as I want. That's the same thing as I want this wet log to burn without yeah. without chopping it up into little pieces. Okay, so I'm sort of I'm sort of building up. I'm sort of building up a platform of to I'm building up like a context for a question about a meditation practice. But um, so I've gotten the sense that wholesome thoughts um, in the way that you talk about it are thoughts of satisfaction. You know, everything's fine. I feel great right now. Totally fine. The porridge is just right, you know, and unwholesome thoughts are thoughts of dissatisfaction like. I want to get on the roof or I want to get John. I want my meditation to be better, which is making me feel like this question is about to fall into the category of unwholesome thoughts. But mm-hmm. um, so what I was going to say is that that's been working for me really well throughout the day is reminding myself just, you know, be happy now, be satisfied. It's not complicated. Just be happy, be, be satisfied. And okay. And then there's a sense of relief and relaxation and that's totally enough. Um, right. So I guess what then? Uh, oh, not just over time, but from also from time to time, mm-hmm. the relaxation gets deeper. That the mm-hmm. whole teaching of the Buddha can be said in, in several different ways. One is, is that the, the teaching of the Buddha, there's nothing to it but a morality teaching. It's morality 100% of the time. Ethics, that's all there is to it. Because when you get your mind cleaned out, your behavior is excellent. Mm-hmm. But we can also say, oh no, uh, the entire teachings of the Buddha is designed around getting the mind satisfied. Because if we can be satisfied, then we're already at that level where we don't harm anybody. The only time that people are going to harm each other, steal from each other, lie to each other, any of that kind of stuff is because one or the other of them, or both mostly, are dissatisfied. And so to, to connect to connect that sort of moment-to-moment satisfaction to the sitting practice um, mm-hmm. and going further with it, because... You know, I mean, I've only really start, recently restarted the practice, so maybe that's this is the reason. But I'm still sitting, and then the mind will wander. Um, so, but when how do you does, go about? That's a wandering mind is not a relaxed, happy mind. It's on its way to some place. You've heard the analogy of the um, uh, monkey mind, mm-hmm. where the monkey is jumping from tree limb to tree limb to tree limb. Why does the mo- monkey leave where he is now when he goes to jump someplace else and he gets there? Why does he leave that place if he jumped to go there? The reason that he's not go- uh, staying there is because he's not satisfied with it. In fact, uh, more than likely, it's not good enough. It's dangerous still. He's still looking mm-hmm. for a place and he jumps from limb to limb and never finds any satisfaction. So that brings me back to the uh, the third item of the entire teaching of the Buddha can be summed up in one word. Relax. But coming out of the hindrances is a way of relaxing. Jumping the monkey mind, etc. like that is not very relaxing. 
And then we can start paying attention to our feelings, and that gets us even more relaxed. And then we can go like there's alpha and beta and theta rays, waves in the mind and hypnosis and auto-suggestions and all of that kind of stuff is merely designed in the way of getting us more relaxed and more relaxed. And when we get down to where we're really relaxed, that means we're really stable. Okay, so this is what the word samatha means, is that it's stable, or it's strong, or it stays. And now imagine that it's like a camera on a tripod. What are the three legs of the tripod? Is the body, the feelings, and the mind, so that we get everything really stable, and now we can really see what's going on. Just like a good camera needs to be stable. It's really hard to take good video from a car window. So when I come when I come to sit down to do the practice to do anapanasati, I just continue. At, how would how would you sit down to do the practice? Like, you know, do I have to sit down? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm still I still depend on three sittings a day to to really keep the fire going. Um, well, so the Buddha talks about doing it right now, not about scheduled events. Scheduling <laughs> events is the is the western mentality of formal practice with a formal starting point and a formal ending point and the teaching of the buddha is wake up do mm -hmm. it right now every time you remember and that every time you remember is then always screwed into the matrix of the word always you gotta always do this no you only have to do it when you remember to do it you can't do it always, but you can do it when you remember to do it. Okay. And you don't need to sit. What you need is in seclusion. You can lay down. You can walk. You can uh, just sit in front of the, the computer screen and just close your eyes and say, wow, I do feel good, don't I? Mm -hmm, this is good enough. Give yourself a moment of pleasure. Take your mind off of whatever that's going on, and that will take the mind into a state of relaxation. And if you stay there a little longer, it'll get a little more relaxed. Until you can get the alpha waves of whatever waves down to about four cycles a second. That's pretty slow. Normally the mind is just all over the place. It's like 30, 40, 50 cycles a second. Getting down to the alpha is like 7 to 14, but we can get it down to 4 just by sitting and relaxing. And you don't have to do that with a timer or incense or candles or cushions or meditation halls or any of that kind of stuff. But doing it alone, secluded from other people, is the recommendation. Okay. I mean the way the way I the way I see the sitting practice for me at least um, is um, sort of like detox or rehab for a drug addict. Like the world is something that the mind is addicted to, and um, you know an addict doesn't necessarily know that there's a problem until you take away their drug. Um, so the mind that's used to being stimulated all the time, when you sit down and look at the breath, which is not stimulating all, all of a sudden you have withdrawals. That's all that anxiety, all that restlessness, all that wandering. Um, so then you see, that's wow. That's an okay, interesting ha way of putting it. Yes, that's true. I would say. 
because uh, well, I, I got this. That's this, actually this is, the biggest problem that people have with a meditation retreat. They go into the retreat saying, "Hot dog, I'm going to get a lot of this stuff out of the meditation." And the first day, they take his books, they take his cell phone, they take his laptop, they take his mm-hmm. pen and pencil away. And now we go into withdrawal, and we yeah. don't even know that. The, I mean, we were addicted to that cell phone. We're going through a state of withdrawal. When I when I came out of Swan Milk, um, is the, the first thing I wrote down was this analogy. You know, I feel like, and I was an addict because before I went to Swan Milk, I was angry all the time and I was restless all the time. Um, and when I went to Swan Milk, I sat and I went into withdrawal. Like I was sort of addicted to talking, addicted to thinking. Well, I'm still addicted to talking and thinking, but I was also addicted to like watching arguments between people online, like debates and things like that. So when I sat there, it was like six days of agonizing withdrawal. Um, And then finally it all just kind of burst and fell away. And I kind of told you about that. But um, so for me, like now having gone back into the world and relapsed. You could have chased that stuff out right from the very beginning with the instruction is, okay, so you're going with withdrawal. I can handle that. No big problem, no big deal. I didn't know that I was that addicted to the to the Reddit, but never mind. <laughs> I'm good now. Okay, so that's and maybe after a few days you begin to practice correctly, but the first day or so is oh poor me, oh poor me, this is tough, this is hard, and that's all just the attitude that we came with. So you could in fact say that part of the matrix is the attitude that we have. Because mm-hmm. we see the world through our own filter, our attitude. And that this is, in fact, what's part of the practice is, is that after we begin to take the right effort to clean up the mind, we begin to get good at cleaning up the mind. And then we begin to change our attitude to, oh, I can't do this. I can't clean up the mind. Wow, I can actually do it. And that's when the pity sets in. That's the uh, the achievement or the success from being able to become satisfied. Satisfaction become, has, brings in a new quality of success. We've got it. And that, that, that's the point where you actually feel like you are making choices rather than just being dragged around by your addictions. Mm-hmm. Because you know that you've always had choices, that you, mm-hmm. you let yourself be dragged around by the addictions, where you were in charge all the time. Here you are being dragged all around the yard on that cell phone. But who's got a hold of the cell phone? Let the cell phone go around the yard. I don't care. All I have to do is let go. <laughs> I like I like the I like the um oh you know I was thinking uh Tom Meddy. I don't know. Do you know Tom Meddy? Or he's probably like an Ajahn now. Um he was at Swan Mok when Don Damavidu was there. He was uh, yes, a Thai monk. I know him. Yes, I have had conversations with Ajahn Meti. He's, he gave two talks. Uh, Adama Vidu was busy that day. I don't remember what was going on with him. He was, <laughs> he had something going on with him. Um, but in one of them, he, 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 I, I didn't understand, but he just, I had never really heard all of the teachings at this point, but he was pointing at the illustration of dependent origination, you know, that Tibetan illustration that Buddha Dasa has. Um, and he was it's talking about, it was, yeah, and he, Tom Medi was, 
his English wasn't great, but I, the one thing that I took away is that he was pointing out that in each real, sensory realm that there was a Buddha going like this, um, and he was basically saying stop to the beings. He just kept saying stop to the beings in the realm. And that was like my takeaway from that, that like, okay, I didn't understand, but I had already had the insight about like the narrative construction of my reality. And I was like, okay, he's saying stop. He's saying, he just keeps saying stop. And that, that was the one thing that, you know, in, 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 in what I could understand that he was saying is, is just, just, just to stop basically. Stop. And yeah. That, that and, really, it, 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 there are several suttas, but the one that's the most profound is in the Angulimala Sutta, number 86 in the Majjhima Nikaya, where Angulimala finally says, stop, monk. And the Buddha says, I have stopped, Angulimala, you stop too. <laughs> okay, so that idea of stopping, but we can see that with the Petitra Samapada, that's why we practice it backwards, is because it's a sequence of events. When can we wake up? And then the the, uh, the effort that we take is to stop it. Mm-hmm. When we wake up and see what's going on, we can put a stop to that. Like unwholesome thoughts, we put a stop to it. Now, we can't put a stop to it in the sense that we stop the mind completely. We don't have those skills. But what I can do is stop the unwholesome thoughts by substituting them with wholesome thoughts. And then later, eventually, when I get feeling so good that it, it's better to pay attention to how good I feel than to try to talk myself into how good I feel, then I can stop thinking altogether and just experience how good I feel. Yeah, experience uh, for for me, like I think of it as experiencing the cessation side of things is 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 far more at least when I can, uh, that that is stopping the the unwholesome and then enjoying the cessation, and then mm-hmm. doing that over and over and over, and then that becomes continuous, and then that creates like a sense of a coolness that's that's continuous. Um, so I, I remember so I'm I, glad to I, hear that Achanetti is actually teaching that as part of the retreat at Watson Mokus. Stop. <laughs> yeah, Achanetti really. <laughs> I think he was a little addicted to the breath, though. <laughs> if you watch him, if you watch him meditate and walk around, he like really seemed like he was very blissed out all the time. Like on specifically in this area, he like was really like in it, you know. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's put this little statement into the mix. There are suttas. One of them, number one thirty-one, is actually uh, the English translation is one fortunate attachment many things that we can attach to are fortunate so addicted to the breath congratulations on chimetti mm-hmm. yeah okay that's a good <laughs> attachment that's a good one okay we, uh, we're, we're talking about making wise decisions about what is worth clinging to mm-hmm. and one fortunate yeah. attachment is this present moment one fortunate attachment is to watch the breath. Another fortunate attachment is wholesome thoughts. These are all good things. Another attachment is his name itself, Ajahn Metti. So mm-hmm. Metta, that's that's one of the things that would be a okay. fortunate attachment. Yeah. Yeah, I, I liked him a lot. <laughs> he had an energy for sure around him that made me feel calm. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, 
I think I think I think my takeaway here is like is just going back to like stopping. Stop trying to find something else. Stop trying to ask more questions. Stop trying to like find philosophical conclusions, things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and just I, sit down and, and be pleased. Sit down mm -hmm. and pleasurably just enjoy the moment. Be and then what I was trying to get out earlier, I never really ever really got to it, but I keep trying to figure out if there is an awareness that is apart from conditions. That's what I was trying to ask you earlier, but like I said, that would just become way too theoretical or speculative. Yeah, but, yeah who cares? Yeah. Let's enjoy the moment. <laughs> we don't have to yeah. figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, Martin. Well, let's go ahead and finish up now. This has been a delightful conversation. I enjoy these kind of talks. Yeah, me too. I um, I um, I thought. Well, I'm not really good at being a student when it comes to Dhamma because. Like one of my biggest hindrances I still have, I would say, is a little bit of conceit about the Dhamma. <laughs> I I spend so much time thinking about it that I really feel like, you know, my understanding of the word, the terms and the right things like that. Like I really it's hard to find people that I can talk to that I won't like disagree with, you know, um, but like, you know, um, so I don't have basically Dhamma friends in my daily life because. I'm too well come join us we've got sanka we've but talking we've to you is enjoyable it. because talking about dom is enjoyable that's kind of where i was going with that but yeah okay well on skype we've got two groups one is the sanka uk and the other one is mm -hmm. the song us when i the first email that you got from me has those links mm -hmm. we've got a sanka yeah. going and it's going to grow come join us and help it grow go Go find some real noble friends. We need to have noble friends. I couldn't do mm -hmm. it all by myself. Don't try to do it all by yourself. Come, you know, come join the, the crowd. Come be around nobles. Have noble thoughts and noble ideas and express them with each other and congratulate each other for a marvelous practice. This is what Sangha is all about. That's what the watch is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. And people are getting along really well together. Friendship, you've heard. Everything about this whole practice is friendship. Becoming friends with yourself, giving yourself pleasure, giving yourself nourishment, giving yourself um, warm fuzzies. Mm -hmm. And when we get good at that, we can give it to others. But yeah, we also everyone else. get great enjoyment out of getting it from others while we're still practicing how to how to find it for ourselves, we can find it from our friends, too. That's why the noble Sangha is. I mean, that's why the Buddha started the Sangha. Here's a here's a point, because I've seen it. Why did Buddha invent the bhikkhu? The answer is, is that that's an irrelevant question. He did not invent the bhikkhu. The bhikkhus had existed for centuries before that. What he developed instead was the noble Sangha. That's mm -hmm. what Buddha come up with. Is the communication and the friendship and the community that of, among nobles. And that's what's missing primarily. The number one most important thing is missing in Western Buddhism. And that seems to for me to be like the, one of the greatest blessings that came out of Ajahn Buddhadasa and Ajahn Chah 
is is this focus on on establishing and creating sangha mm-hmm. um because I, know, I um, was around them <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe next time we talk i i love i love hearing from people who like knew buddha dasa directly because i'm always curious of what he was like as a human being like physically like you know i always imagine him being like very like i don't know like like some like gravity you know like strong like solid he was more like santa claus <laughs> okay that makes sense <laughs> all right all right jolly old elf okay santa claus okay <laughs> <laughs> all righty well thanks for talking to me today um okay michael we'll see you later yeah, you enjoy the rest of your day. I love hearing the cicadas in the background. It gives me nostalgia. <laughs> All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.